tonight. First Samuel chapter 17 is a familiar passage of Scripture, I think, not just to the Bible student, but even, I think, to those that maybe casually have been around church things, because we find ourselves in the Valley of Elah, and uh, the children of Israel are encamped on one side, and the Philistines on the other side. And if you were to look down the middle of the Valley of Elah, uh, you'd see down there a, a large giant by the name of Goliath. And uh, I don't have to tell you how the story ends. You already know how that young David comes forth and uh, casts the stone. And, and it, it was one of those divine heat-seeking stones. You know what I'm talking about? They, uh, the, the, it was a ballistic stone come out of the creek there. And uh, you might have to check your concordance three times before you find that. But it's in there. It was a ballistic stone. And went right into the center of that giant's forehead and sank in. And uh, by the help of God, the giant was slain. Uh, but I want us to notice this evening a statement that David makes. And I want us to consider it for a few moments in the preaching tonight. First Samuel chapter number 17. Let's begin in verse number 32. First Samuel chapter 17, verse 32. The Bible says, And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Thou art not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For thou art but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. And David said unto Saul, Thy servant kept his father's sheep. And there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him and smote him and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. David said, Moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion, and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said unto David, Go, and the Lord be with thee. And Saul armed David with his armor. And he put an helmet of brass upon his head. Also he armed him with a coat of mail. And David girded his sword upon his armor, and he essayed to go, for he had not proved it. And David said unto Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not proved them. And David put them off him, and he took his staff in his hand, and chose him five smooth stones out of the brook, and put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had, even in a scrip, and his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. We'll stop our reading there. Father, bless your word tonight. I know, Lord, that in and of ourselves there's nothing about us that can be blessed. But, Lord, that which you've sanctified, that which you've justified in the person of Christ Jesus. And, Lord, of course, tonight you can bless your word. Lord, it's, it's the sword of your spirit. It's your word. And I just pray tonight that you would bless and honor and magnify it in the name of the Lord Jesus through it. And may a work be done in our hearts that would draw us closer unto thee and would bear fruit into eternity. And we'll be sure to thank you for it. Lord, I love you and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to notice what David says in verse number 39. David said unto Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not proved them. And David put them, put the armor of Saul, he put them off him. It strikes me this evening that David makes a choice when he goes into the battle about which type of armor he's going to put on. How many of you know this to be true, that our life is filled with spiritual battles? Day in and day out, my friend. If you have not experienced one recently, hang on. There's probably a bigger one coming. We all experience uh, battles, spiritually speaking, and sometimes those come in the form of discouragement. 
Sometimes they come in the form of, of health difficulties. Sometimes in the form of relationship difficulties with our loved ones. There's all kinds of ways that the battle might present itself in our lives. And every time that a battle takes place, you and I have a choice as to what type of armor we're going to suit up in. Just like David, he had to say, what kind of armor is going to protect me? What kind of weaponry is going to give me the victory? I want to preach to you tonight on this thought. I cannot go with these. He has tried and tested certain armor and he has confidence in it and he looks at this armor of a king and says, it may impress you, but I have not proven it. I cannot go with it. Before we get into our preaching tonight, I want to ask this question. What was it that prompted David to join the battle? You know, most people, I think, in the Christian life never really consciously engage in spiritual warfare. Uh, they just sort of float through life, kind of like a bobber on, on, on a... Uh, I'm getting ready to go fishing at the beach, so you forgive me where my mind's at, amen? But I, but I think they think about... I most believe they're just like a bobber, just sort of floating through. And wherever the pressures of life push them, that's where they go. Uh, wherever the current takes them, that's where they wind up. David was a man that could have floated on past this battle and never engaged in it. But you know what would have happened? Sooner or later, the battle would have come to his front door. Those Philistines were going to overtake the land. And he might have been able to avoid it that day. But there'd be a day if he wouldn't join the battle, the battle would come join him. Can I say in your life and mine, we're going to, we're going to join the battle. We're going to fight this. If, if we're saved by the grace of God, and if we have any desire at all to have a life that means something, uh, we better go ahead and meet the enemy now because we're going to meet him one way or the other. There's a great many people that never fight the battle until the devil's done got them whooped. He's got them on the run. He's got their life in pieces. They've ignored it. They've set it to the side and they don't want to engage in it. And then the time comes that they don't go looking for the Philistines, but the Philistine comes looking for them and they can't hide from them anymore. David was wise enough to engage in the battle while the battle could still be won. And what was it that prompted him to do this? Well, I noticed at least three things. We could probably say 300, but for time's sake, let's notice three in our text. Look back at verse number 23. We did not read this passage, but we'll read it now. The Bible says, as he talked with them, behold, there came up the champion." the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines, and spake according to the same words, and David heard them. Look what your, your Bible calls him. The Holy Ghost calls him the champion, the Philistine of Gath. Can I say the first thing that caused him to join the battle was he had a formidable enemy. He had an enemy that could do some damage if it was left unchecked. You know, the reality is in our life, the spiritual battles that we face, at the end of the day, whatever battlefield they may transpire upon, there are essentially three enemies that we are always set in array against. The world always seeks to derail us from serving God. Uh, the devil, if he can have an entrance in our life, will try to destroy us and keep us from serving God. And then what I believe is the most formidable enemy that we have, the flesh that dwells within us, always seeks to sabotage the work of God in our life. And can I say these enemies are not enemies to trifle with. They are serious foes. There has been a great many people that were blessed with talent and ability, natural acumen for things and could have been used of God, had potential, had opportunity, had doors open to them. But because they refused to join the battle and fight when it mattered, they allowed the flesh an upper hand. They allowed the world an influence. They allowed the devil an entrance. And their life was destroyed as a result of it. 
David walks out on the battlefield and he says, listen, all these other jokers out here, we can let them stand and strut. That big one right up there in the middle, we better do something about him or he's going to whoop somebody. We better handle him while we've got the chance because if they ever rally behind him, we're really in for trouble. I think he joined the battle because he knew this is serious. And listen, in our life, it's serious. It ain't a question of whether we're going to be a good Christian or a super Christian. It is a question of whether we're going to be a faithful Christian or a failure of a Christian. You understand that tonight? It's not a question. It's not like, oh, I know, we, we done, my generation grew up in T-ball and everybody got a trophy. But listen, there's people that make shipwreck of their lives. It's not like, oh, we're all going to wind up great, but if we want to go to the next level, if we want to be the, the, the gold level Christian, then we can join the fight. No, friend, if you don't join the fight, the devil will rip you to shreds in your life. Uh, you'll go out of here just like just like Lot, just Lot. Now, I understand it means he was a righteous man, but it ever dawned on you that you could also say when he left Sodom and Gomorrah, it was just Lot. That was all that was left. Hey, he got out of there with his soul, but not much else because he underestimated the enemy. David looks and he says, we better do something about this. He's a serious enemy. So there's a formidable enemy. Look down at verse 24. The Bible says this, and all the men of Israel, when they saw the man fled from him and were sore afraid. I think David joined the army because there was a formidable enemy. But number two, I think he joined the fight because there was a frightful army. He looked around and here's what he recognized. If I don't whoop him, ain't nobody else going to whoop him. Can I say this? Ain't nobody else going to whoop the giants in your life. You're going to have to do it. I wish I could do it for you. I wish your Sunday school teacher could do it for you. I, I wish the deacons could do it for you. I, I wish I wish the youth pastor could. But listen, the truth is, your giants, you are going to have to slay. Can't nobody slay them for you. David recognized it was incumbent upon him. There wasn't nobody coming to his rescue. He was going to have to do something about it if it was going to be done. I understand we need to be empathetic. You know, my spiritual gift is gentleness and sympathy. And... uh I wonder who's going to tell the truth and laugh when they, when I said that. And uh, I, I know, listen, I understand that there's times that people in weakness and infirmity, they, they need help, they need encouragement, they need a blessing, that they need folks to undergird them and uplift them. There's times I need it in my life, there's times you need it in your life. But you know, every now and then, there's times also that we need to be reminded uh, that the battle's real, the fight's real. If we, if we don't buck up and get up and do this thing, it ain't going to get done. Nobody's going to beat these giants for you. Nobody, nobody's going to mature you as a Christian except you. Nobody's going to get victory in your life. I understand that, that God giveth us the victory through Christ Jesus our Lord, but can't nobody shove it into your hand. You're going to have to be willing to see victory in your life. You're going to have to be willing to make the choices to see your life be lived for Christ. Can't nobody do that for you. The army won't do it. You're going to have to stand up and do it for yourself. There was a frightful army. And then I would say this. Look down at verse 25. The Bible says, The men of Israel said, have you seen this man that has come up? Isn't that a funny thing to say? David probably said, see him, big as a house. Of course, I've seen him. Have you seen this man that has come up? Surely to defy Israel is he come up. And it shall be that the man who killeth him, the king will enrich him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, what shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine and take away the reproach from Israel? Now, listen to the next statement he made. They just got through telling him, You'll get the king's daughter, you'll get gold, you'll get all this stuff, fabulous cash and prizes. If you go out there, David, you whoop that giant. But listen to what David is concerned with. He says, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the arms of the living God? Later on, David's brothers would uh, sort of ridicule him. His older brother Eliab in particular would 
would ridicule him and say, you know, you just come down here to stir stuff up. And David would look at him in verse 29 and say, what have I now done? Is there not a cause? You know, I would say this, why did David join the battle? Well, because there was a formidable enemy and he knew that enemy had to be defeated. There was a frightful army. He recognized what nobody going to defeat the giant for him. He was going to have to do it. Nobody's going to step in in his stead. But I'd say this, number three, why did he do it? Because there was a faithful God. He says, you know, it ain't right that we should let this, this uh, Philistine talk about our God this way. It's, it's unjust. And how dare we, bunch of cowards we are, if we allow this Philistine to talk about our God the way that He is. He's been a faithful God to us. He's been a good God to us. He's been with us the whole way and He's with us even now. And we owe it to Him to stand up and fight on His behalf. Now let me go ahead and tell you, listen, the Lord don't need our help in whooping anything or anybody. But shame on us if we don't offer it. He don't need it, right? But shame on us if we don't offer it. Because think of all He's done in your life and mine that we would repay Him by sort of booing through life, apathetic, uninterested, and unvigilant concerning the spiritual warfare around us. How dare we just float along? I mean, all that He's done for us and all that He's given for us, how He died for us, how He saved us, how He loves us, how He goes with us, how He provides for us, how He meets our needs, how He blesses us, helps us, strengthens us, encourages us, and we'd be too coward to fight the giants in our own life. I'd say this, He probably did it because there was a faithful God. He said it is not right that God should be defied this way. And that's what brings us to verse 32. David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Saul, you may not do it. These other boys may not do it. But if no one else will, I will go and fight this battle. Hey, listen, it's a great day in your life and mine when we're willing to stand up and say, even if nobody will live like a Christian, I'll live like a Christian. Hey, even if nobody understands it, I'm still gonna, I'm still gonna do what's right. Even if no one expects me to. We live in a day that is, that is plagued by low expectations. And it's easy, especially as believers, man, the expectations have never been lower. If you don't kill somebody, you're a good Christian. That's about it. The day that we live in. I mean, that, that's the standard, right? I'm talking about cold-blooded, malicious murder. As long as you don't do that, they say, well, you know, you're better than David, so. But I, and so we, we, the, the standards are low. But listen, when are we going to quit accepting that and start saying, no, I owe God more than this. I'm going to step up and I'm going to join the battle. He says, Could, if nobody else is going to go, fellas, I'm going to go down. I'm going to defeat that giant. But that then brings the question to us, how's he going to do this? What armor would he wear? The natural thing anyone would do is they would reach for some means of both protecting themselves defensively and attacking the enemy offensively. What does David choose? He has a choice that must be made. Can I read a few New Testament scriptures to you before we get into the rest of the message. Listen to what the book of Romans says, chapter number 13, verse number 12. The Bible says the night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Listen to what Paul says in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 22. He's speaking to the Ephesians and he commands them that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. 
He says similar to the church at Colossae. He says in chapter 3, verse 8, But now ye also put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. So here's David in the Old Testament. He looks at Saul's armor and he says, I cannot go with these. And the Bible says he put off that armor. And in the putting off of that armor, he put on a different armor that enabled him to have the victory that day. What can we learn about this choice that he made? Well, let's notice three things tonight then we'll go to the house. First, I want you to think with me about the armor that he remembered. The armor that he remembered. You, you, you remember how this whole thing begins. David comes in. We just read it, verse 32. And he says, don't worry, Saul. Ain't nobody else going to go down there. But I'll go down there and I will fight the lion. Or I will fight the giant. And, and Saul says to him, he says to David, verse number 33, Thou art not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For thou art but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. Now that in and of itself would have been enough to make most people turn around and go home. Because let me be honest here, Saul is right in what he says. It is rational what Saul says. You know, boy, I'm going to get in trouble saying this, but the rational answer is not always the spiritual answer. The, the logical answer is not always the spiritual answer. And that's rational what Saul says. He says, are you crazy? A little wrong like you going to go down here and fight this giant? I mean, he's been eating people like you for breakfast since before you were born, David. You really think you have the ability to defeat him? And all of a sudden, David launches into a fit of nostalgia. And he begins to tell about something that God had done in his life. Verse 34, David said unto Saul, Thy servant kept his father's sheep. And there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him and smote him and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. David said, Moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion, out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said unto David, Go, and the Lord be with thee. Now you might say, Well, preacher, that's good and everything, but God ain't never done that for me. No, but I think God's probably done something better for you and me. Because if we were to summarize what David is saying here, he really describes three things. One, he describes how the lion pounced. He describes how he was out uh, just going about his business. He thought he was in perfect safety. He thought he was in perfect security. But he did not know that there was a lion and a bear that were stalking the flock. Before he even knew what had happened, he was already in the range and in the grasp of this lion. And this lion jumps out, seizes upon the lamb. And all of a sudden, David, who thought he was safe, who thought he was fine, is in complete and utter peril. It's a reminder in your life and mine of when God saved us and found us. We went about our life thinking everything was alright. We wouldn't imagine. I mean, there's very few people that go through this life believing that they deserve the hell that they deserve. Believing that they deserve the damnation that they're on their way to meet. And most people go through life thinking they're okay, thinking they're perfectly fine. Meanwhile, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and the record of their sins is prowling around their life. The wrath of God is abiding upon them. They're like Jonathan Edwards described in the sermon, Sinners of the Hands of the Angry God. They're just like a spider dangling from a thread over the flames of hell. They have no clue what kind of peril that they are in. Then all of a sudden, the Holy Ghost pulls back the veil 
like He did for the servant of Elijah where that servant saw the chariots on the hillside. The sinner uh, sees the, uh, the judgment of God abiding above them. And all of a sudden, like God makes it real and makes it known to us, we realize in that moment, oh my soul, I, if I died right now, I'd die in my sins and I'd go to hell. All of a sudden, we realize we're beset about and we're in great danger. But then he describes not only how the lion pounced, he described how the lion perished. He says that uh, lion went out and grabbed hold of that lamb And the way he says it in verse 35, I went out after him and smote him and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. Now it's interesting because what David is saying, it's easy to think David is bragging. But in the next verse, he says, you know, it wasn't me that did it. It was God that did it for me. So we could almost say it this way. It's almost like David saying, you know, on that day it was like just something overtook me and it's like it wasn't me doing it. It was like somebody else was doing it in my place. It's like I wasn't the one slaying the lion. It's like somebody else stepped into David's shoes and began to slay that lion in David's place. And it reminds me of what Christ did on Calvary when He stepped into our place on the cross of Calvary and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And we can look back and you know we can say, well, you know, I was saved when I believed on the Lord. But it wasn't us that saved us. It was God that saved us. All we did was allow Him to save us. We didn't do nothing to contribute to the saving except let Him save us. But rather, here's what He did. He stepped in our place, took the lion by the beard and slew him and destroyed the influence of the devil over our lives. Gave us liberty, gave us freedom in Jesus Christ. He describes how the lion perished. And then He describes how the Lord protected. He said, you know, at the end of the day, that wasn't none of me that did that. That was God that did that. You look at me, Saul, and you say, David, how are you ever going to do this? But I'm trying to tell you, King Saul, that God's done this before. And when He did it before, it wasn't me that did it. It was Him that did it. And if He could do it then, then He could still do it now. I see the armor that He remembered. And you know what it makes me think about? Now, here's David. Now, he's getting ready to go out and fight the giant. And he's saying, what God did before, God can do now. Now, here's the question. What, what armor is He going to wear? Is David going to go out in different armor now than the armor that he utilized and employed then when God delivered him? You know, I don't know about you, but it makes me think about the book of Galatians. Can I read this passage to you? What armor would he wear? Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says this, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth and crucified among you? This only would I learn of you, Receive ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? You say, preacher, why is David telling this story? He's just looking back at what has worked for him in the past. And he's saying, you know, the thing that saved me then was that I trusted in God. Why would I think trusting in anything else now is going to help me? And can I say in your life and mine, you know, the greatest foe that was ever slain in our life, our sin debt, our lost condition, it wasn't slain by the energy of the flesh, by the wisdom and cunning of man. It was not slain through self-will and determination, but it was slain through faith in Jesus Christ. If we're going to defeat the giants in our life, hey, we've begun in faith. Why would we think the flesh is going to carry us through now? We began in, in the Spirit. Why would we think that self is going to get the job done now? The armor that worked in the past is still the armor that works today. And it's funny how we as Christians do. 
Uh, I mean, we got a real clear understanding that we say by grace, uh, by faith through grace, that not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. And we're willing to say amen to that and we're willing to shout for that. But then the moment the giant steps up in our life, we want to depend on the arm of flesh to defeat that foe. Why would we think if our flesh couldn't save us then, why could it save us now? If it couldn't fix us then, why could it fix us now? I'm just saying it ain't going to be through the energies of the flesh. It's not going to be through self-will and determination, but rather through surrender to the leadership and guidance of the Spirit of God and obedience to the precious Word of God. We started in the Spirit. Why would we think self would get it done? We started by faith. Why would we think flesh would get it done? He looks back and he says, you know, that armor, that armor worked for me. And why would I abandon it now? So I see the armor that he remembered. Number two, I see the armor that he refused. Verse 38, Saul armed David with his arm, and he put a helmet of brass upon his head. Also he armed him with a coat of mail. And David girded his sword upon his armor, and he essayed to go, for he had not proved it. David said unto Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not proved them. And David put them off him. I don't know where, I don't know how. I've probably said it when I've taught young people, but all my life when I was little, I don't know if you ever heard this, but I heard Sunday school teachers tell me, that, that David didn't wear that armor because it was too big for him. You ever hear that before? I heard that my whole life. That's not what your Bible says. That is not what it says. It says that David essayed to go. It means he refused to go. It means they suited him up in this armor and he got, he got the feeling, this ain't a good idea. What am I doing? I don't know that this armor is going to protect me. If the armor that I'm trusting in protects me, I don't need this armor. If the armor that I'm trusting in does not protect me, this armor ain't going to protect me. And so he says, this is foolishness. I'm not going to go out in this. And here's why. He says, I have not proved them. I don't know that they'll stand in the day of battle, David says. And you know, it ain't no wonder that he said that because, can I be honest? That armor hadn't seen very much battle. You go back through Saul's history as king and you'll find that that army, that that armor, it hadn't seen a lot of battle. In fact, uh, most of the time, it had been sitting up under pomegranate trees and under shade and hiding from the battle. And you know that's how the flesh does. The flesh would just sooner ignore it and hide from it. The flesh, this is why these self-help gurus make so much money. Uh, you know, can, can I tell you this? It's like you ever see these real estate books. You, these, you know what I'm talking about, Ken. Down at the Walmart. Uh, I guess because poor folks shop at the Walmart. And they got these investment books, you know. I'm with them, by the way. That's why I see them down there. But they'll got these and, and, and they'll say, you know, 30 days to wealth and prosperity and this and that. And I've always thought to myself, you know, the best racket around is writing books telling people how to get rich. <laughs> They're making more money than anybody. And it's like these self-help cats down at the airport, you know, that are trying to help people work through their issues in life. Why is that so appealing? Because the flesh always wants to run from the actual problem. You know what the actual problem in your life and mine? Uh, the actual problem is the degree, lesser or more, to which we are yielding to Jesus Christ. Every other problem in your life is going to flow from that. Now, I'm not saying you might not have problems separate from that, but I'm saying you get that right and everything else will work itself out. And why is it the flesh just feeds on this self-help garbage? The reason why is because it's trying to run from the chief problem. Just like Saul, when the when the battle's hot, he's laid up under a pomegranate tree. And son, he had every pomegranate around there whooped. But the problem is that wasn't where the battle was. The one where the battle was. They, you know, this, this armor, it hadn't seen a lot of, a, a lot of battle. In fact, we could say this. What kind of armor was it? Well, number one, it was the armor of stature without spirituality. 
Saul was chosen to be king over Israel uh, for his height, for his strength, for his looks, but he was never a spiritually minded man. They didn't look at Saul and say, Saul walks with God. He's who we need. They looked at Saul and said, Saul's the tallest boy in the group. Let's get him. Outward appearance. And this is why when the Bible describes David and, and God's choice of David, it lays great emphasis on the fact that God looks past the external and sees the internal and sees what's going on in his heart. Why does the Holy Ghost lay emphasis to that? Not just because He wanted you and I to feel better about being ugly or whatever, but the reason is so is He's laying that in comparison to how Israel had chosen Saul. Israel had chosen Saul because he's good looking, because he's tall, because he's strapping, because he was a strong boy, because he looked like a king. The only problem was God could see more than they could see and He didn't look like a king to God. The armor of stature without spirituality. Hey, listen, here's the truth of the matter. We ain't going to whoop the giants in our life until we will face them through a spiritual perspective. In other words, recognizing that these are not just merely temporal obstacles and challenges that, that, that we may face. And most spiritual battles will manifest in a temporal means. It, there will be times in your life when you wake up in the middle of the night and, and the devil's climbing all over your back and you're having to pray and get peace from God. There will be times like that. But most of the spiritual battles you'll fight will manifest through temporal means. And the sooner we recognize that though we may... Hey, listen, the weapons of our warfare... That though we walk in the flesh, we don't war after the flesh, Paul said. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after, our, after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. Paul's talking about contention, discord in the church. But he says, you know, at the end of the day, that may manifest that way, but that's really not what the battle's about. He says, rather, what the battle is about it's about imaginations exalting themselves against Jesus Christ. It's about who's going to run our life. Who's going to run our life. And you, the reason that David said, I can't take this armor, because the only thing this armor is here for is to look good. It ain't here to win the battle. Until we recognize it ain't about looking good, it's about winning the battle. We're not going to get the help we need. So I would say it was the armor of stature without spirituality. Number two, it was the armor of sacrifice without submission. I can tell you another time that Saul was wearing this armor. That was when Saul defeated the Amalekites. You remember God had commanded Saul when he defeated the Amalekites to kill every one of them. I mean, kill the, kill, kill the daddies and the mamas and the babies and, and kill their dog and kill the goldfish and make the cat watch. You know, it was kill everybody, kill everything. And uh, Saul chose not to obey the Lord. Uh, instead, Saul, this is what he did. He went and he, he slew the enemy, but then he took the spoil. And here's what he did. He looked at God and he said, God, I'll take half and you take half. And God said, that ain't what I want, Saul. I want it all. And Saul said, no, 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 God, I'll take half, you take half. And he took some of the spoil unto himself and then he took some of the, the he called it the best. And, and he took it and he sacrificed it before the Lord. And so God uh, just kind of taps Samuel on the shoulder and says, well, Saul's blown it, Samuel. You need to go down and let him know I'm done with him. Samuel walks down, and as he's walking up to Saul, he can hear the livestock, he can hear the sheep. And he walks up to, to Saul, and Saul does what kids do when their daddy comes home and they're in trouble. Uh, Saul comes up and just, uh, just effusive flattery. I mean, just comes up, oh, Samuel, it's so good to see it. What a great victory we've won. Do you, do you see what all God has done? Praise be to the Lord for all that He's done. The only problem is, uh, Samuel can hear his disobedience bleeding in the background. Can I say this? Boy, we might even preach a little bit here. Hey, can, can I say this to you? We can try to glad hand the Holy Ghost when we're living in rebellion, but the problem is our disobedience is bleeding in His ears. 
We can try to pretend like everything's all right, but God knows. God knows. And we can come up to God and, oh, I love you so much, Lord. Thank you so much, Lord. I, I, I'm so, I praise you. I'm so happy. And the whole time God's going to say, what about this disobedience I hear in your life? Samuel looks at him and says, what meaneth the bleeding of these sheep in mine ears? He pulls Saul to the side. And listen to what he says. Verse number 22 of 1 Samuel 15. Samuel said, hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, He hath also rejected thee from being king. So what was this armor? It was the armor of stature without spirituality, but number two, it was the armor of sacrifice without submission. I'm going to serve God, but I'm going to do it in my own means. I'm going to do it my own way. There's a great many people who, if they were to, if you could really, if their life could tell it honestly, this is what they're trying to say. God, I'll do amazing things for you if you'll just get out of the way and let me run things. I'm guilty of it. I don't know about you. I, I just, I ain't even preaching to you. Who are you? I don't even know you people. I'm not preaching to you. I'm preaching to this guy right here because I know my life. And there's been times I've been guilty of saying, God, you'll just let me do things my way. I'll do amazing things for you. And we often in our life think to ourselves, you know, if I could just get a good run at this problem, I'd fix it because I'm able to. And we've not yet come to terms with the fact that we don't have it within us to slay that giant. Only by submitting to the Lord can the giant be felled in our life. So I, I think it was the armor of, of stature without spirituality, of sacrifice without submission. But then listen to what Saul does. Now, you would think God sends Samuel and Samuel shows up and says, Saul... God's done with you. Uh, he's taken the kingdom from you. He's given it to someone else. God is done with you. Now, here would have been the right thing for Saul to have done. Number one, to repent. And number two, to advocate the trial. What would have been right is for him to get up in front of Israel and all men and say, I've sinned. I've disobeyed the Lord. I've rebelled against Him. I'm not worthy to be king any longer. And I'm praying for our nation that God will give us a king that can serve Him greater than I and set the throne down. But that's not what Saul did. You know what Saul did? He clung to his throne even though God had rejected him. I'd say this, it was the armor of sacrifice without submission, but it was the armor of service without sanction. He just kept on playing the hypocrite even though he knew God knew he didn't care. He said, God don't want me to be king, but when have I ever cared what God wanted? I can fool these people into believing I'm king. And here's what he did. And you know, this is what happens in our life. Uh, sooner or later, if we don't slay the giants, we'll compromise with them. If we don't deal with them, sooner or later, we'll just live with them. But we can't admit that we've compromised our lives. So what we'll do is we'll put on the hypocrite's face and we'll begin to live the part of the hypocrite. That's what Saul did. He wasn't king anymore, but he said, hey, I can just fake it till I make it. I can just pretend I'm king. And won't nobody know any different because nobody knows what God told Samuel and what Samuel told me but me. And he went the rest of his life in utter misery, bitterness, anger, and malice because he put on the hypocrite's mask. You know, it's a dangerous thing when we yield to hypocrisy. I know people will say, well, we're all hypocrites. Yeah, that's good. That's true. But that don't mean we ought to be pleased with it. Like, if what you mean when you say we're all hypocrites is, so why try to be anything else? I'm sorry, I reject that. I understand we ain't none of us what we ought to be. 
But we ought to all be striving to be more than what we are. Well, to all be pressing and try to be what God wants. That's what Paul said. Hey, listen, not that I've already attained, either we're per- already perfect, but I follow after, he said. I ain't give up. I ain't just quit trying. I follow after. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, of course I ain't perfect. I never claim to be perfect. But hey, I'm going to press on. And I'm going to keep going forward. But here, here was Saul's problem. He, he said to himself, you know, God ain't in this thing anymore, but instead of admitting that, I'm just going to just force it and go on and just be a hypocrite. And when you do that, you have signed on to deceive yourself. And once you've deceived yourself, you won't believe anybody else over yourself. It's very hard to get a person out of self-deception. They just about have to get to a place where their life is in wreckage for them to admit that they have deceived themselves. It is a dangerous thing. David looks at it, he says, I don't want this armor. This armor is not what I need. So we see the armor that he refused. We see the armor that he remembered. But then finally, look at verse 40, and I'm just going to mention this in passing, and we'll close. Look at the armory that he retrieved. Now, you say, preacher, the armor? No, the armor. Now, you might say, well, preacher, he doesn't wear any armor. Sure he does. He does wear armor. Well, look at verse 40. I'll show it to you. He took his staff in his hand. Now, a staff's not armor, is it? A staff's a weapon. And he chose him five smooth stones out of the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had even in a script. Pretty soon, California's going to outlaw five stone magazines. I don't know if you know that. Yet, uh, anything over three stones that a shepherd's script will hold, you're going to have to register it, pay a tax stamp. But back in this time, people meant, you know, people had liberty. And so he gets out five smooth stones and loads it into his magazine, and he's ready to go. But you know, these stones, they're not, they're not armor. I mean, you know, that's ammunition, right? And, and the shepherd's, uh, script, I mean, that, that's not armor, right? That, that's, uh, that's his magazine, right? He's, he's just loading it up. And then it says this, his sling was in his hand. Well, now, a sling is not armor. Is it, Brother Ken? A sling is instead another weapon. And he drew near to the Philistine. Now, you say, preacher, well, that's good and everything, but I don't see no armor. Well, no, you gotta look elsewhere to find out what armor he wore. You say, where is the armor that he wore? Well, you find it all the way down in the book of Ephesians. Chapter number 6, verse 13 says this, Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day. Having done all to stand, stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to uh, quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. You say, where was David's armor? He's wearing armor, just what armor you could see. It was spiritual armor. Now listen, I understand all the distinction between an Old Testament saint and a New Testament saint. I understand uh, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. I understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. But you ain't never going to convince me when he says I cannot wear this armor that he don't have in mind that he's suited up in an armor. And he may not articulate it the way Paul does in Ephesians, but here's what he's saying. He's saying, God is my armor. If I've got him, I've got everything that I need. And so then he goes and he instead grabs this armory. Now, what does this armory mean? I mean, what sense can we make out of it? Well, I think we, could, if we squint a little bit, I think we can make a little sense out of it. The first thing he goes and gets is a staff. Now, what was this staff? Well, it was a shepherd's staff. It would have had a, a straight end on one end. It would have had a hook on the other. It was both to correct the sheep with that straight end and to rescue the sheep with that crooked end, that crook that was in it. And what did it represent? Well, I'll tell you what it represented to David. I don't know what it means to you or to little Bo Peep, but here's what it meant to David in Psalms 23 and verse 4. David said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He said, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod, my staff, they come. Isn't that interesting? He associates the staff 
with the presence of the Lord. Preacher, how can I defeat the giants in my life? Well, first off, you're going to have to have the Lord's presence in your life. Now, I know somebody's going to say, oh, preacher, but He'll never leave us nor forsake us. I know that's true, but sometimes we tell Him to hush and we don't listen to Him. I know He's always going to be with us, right? But I don't just want His explicit presence. I want His experiential presence. Say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, I don't just want Him to be there because He promised He'd be there. I want Him to be present in my life where I can feel Him, where I can sense Him, where I can know He's there because He is an invited guest in my life. And He's not there just in faithfulness, but He's there in fellowship as well. We need the Lord's presence. How can I beat the giants in my life? Well, you need to stay praying to Him. Stay sensitive to Him. Stay listening to Him. Stay in His Word. Listen for His voice. Stay in communion with the Lord. I think the script reminds us of of God's presence. Number two, He goes and He picks up five stones. I thought about that. You know, well, why did He pick up the stones and what do they mean? Well, David chose five stones. One was probably for Goliath, undoubtedly. Had His name on it. And then four were probably for Goliath's brothers. God had promised him victory and he was trusting God's promises. This was a great manifestation of faith. He wasn't, he wasn't picking up five in case the first one missed. He was picking up five because he was going to leave there and whoop the rest of Goliath's breath. This is an expression of his faith in God's promise for victory. And you know, that makes sense if we think about it with God's promises. Like God's promises, these stones had survived the swift and troubled waters of life and were only made smoother and more fit for the battle as a result of it. You know the promises of God get more precious the older you get? You know why? Because a, a, a promise, if it's kept, has an ever-increasing reserve of value and of credibility. Every day longer that a promise is kept, the more powerful it becomes. Every single day that the water passed over those stones, it just made them more fit to go in that sling, more smooth, more able. And it reminds me of the promises of God. And listen, in your life and mine, the promises of God are not just things that we put on a, on a word-a-day calendar. They're not just things that we have in a little devotional. They're powerful, potent things because when it is the darkest night, when it is the most difficult day, when the wind blows the strongest and the tempest rages, it's in those moments where we have nothing to cling to but God's promises that the promises of God provide a sure and anchor steadfast hold. I'd say we're going to have to go in with God's promises. We're going to have to recognize that we don't have to live in bondage to this thing. Now, none of us are going to be perfect. Let's just say it. We say it till we're sick of saying it because we say it so much. We say it like it's a Surgeon General's warning. You know we ain't going to be perfect and I know we ain't going to be perfect. So let's start trying to be more than what we've been. Let's start trying to be more than what we've been. I know we ain't going to be perfect, but hey, listen, we don't have to live in bondage. We don't have to live sin hanging over our head. We don't have to live with the devil getting victory in our lives. We can go on and do something for God. But we have to recognize that God has promised us that. And it is only incumbent upon us to believe His promises and to respond in faith accordingly. I'd say the stones remind me of God's promise. I thought this was interesting. He takes those stones and He puts them in a script. Now it's interesting the way the Bible says this. It says He put them in a shepherd's bag which He had even in a script. Now those are two different things. You say, what's the difference? A script is a traveler's bag. You say, preacher, what's a shepherd's bag? A shepherd's bag is a script that a shepherd owns. <laughs> hey, in other words, it's like, uh, you know, uh, whenever, whenever we started having babies, my wife quit carrying pocketbooks, started carrying book bags. Amen. Uh, but I never said, honey, you forgot your book bag. 
right? Because it, it, she's carrying it and carrying everything in it. And so you say, well, preacher, what is a book bag when a mama carries it? It's a diaper bag. Somebody say amen or it's a purse. It repurposes for a brand new and fresh use. But really at the end of the day, what was this bag? This bag would have been something a traveler would have carried as they sojourned. Because they weren't, they weren't nailed down in one location. They was just passing through. And they were taking only what was most necessary. Say, preacher, what does that remind you of? Well, it reminds me of this, of having a traveling or sojourning perspective in life. Part of the reason we struggle to beat these giants is we've done let the world get in us. We've drove our tent stakes deep. And now we struggle to be able to detach enough to let God have the victory in our life. David, he was used to this nomadic lifestyle as a shepherd. And he had learned this. He had learned not to hold too closely to this life or this world. You know you can hold too closely to this life. I'm not saying life ain't a precious thing. I mean, especially when it's your own, it's precious. But you can hold too closely to it. David had learned, this world's not my home. Uh, This world ain't my home. So if I go out there and if I die on the battlefield fighting a giant, that'd be better than to die a coward's death up laid up under the shade. And I'd say this in our life, here's what we need to recognize. This world, this battle, this struggle that we're in, it is but temporary. Even if we spend the rest of our life slaying giants and trying to get peace and victory in our life, we need to recognize this life is but a tiny sliver compared to the vast expanse of eternity. We need to have a less temporal and a more eternal perspective. And then one final thing that he takes, he takes a sling. I remember growing up, my sister will remember this, my brother might remember it as well, I guess they both will. Uh, in the children's church we went, went to growing up every once in a while, they get, uh, they, they, the, the guy that, that, uh, ran the children's church, he'd go get slings. And he'd get slings like what David would have had. And it was basically just a long braided cord with a, with a pouch in the middle of it. And they'd, in children's church, it was like the seventies. You know, people were playing with lawn darts. And so they didn't think nothing about this. They'd get the, I mean, not me, I ain't that old, but when Tracy was there, and they, they'd, but they, they'd take these things and they'd, they'd, they'd let kids throw these rocks in children's church. But just, just remember that. Next time our kids are going crazy, at least we ain't giving them projectile firing weapons. Amen. Uh, but they would take, and, and we all wanted to win one of these slings, you know, because it, it was just the coolest thing. I was never any good with them. David apparently was pretty good with it because he takes that as his only weapon and goes out to battle against the giant. You say, preacher, what does that represent? Well, you know, there came a day later. I mean, this must have got around. Surely it did that this is how he slew the giant. Because there comes a later day in David's life after Saul dies when Saul goes, we preached on this a few weeks ago, and he protects the herds of a man by the name of Nabal. And you remember we preached on wasted kindness and how he's good to Nabal, but Nabal's response is to treat him poorly and rudely. But how that Nabal's wife Abigail goes out and tries to sort of smooth the the the, the troubled waters of how her husband Nabal had behaved and had acted. And she goes out and she starts trying to tell David to be patient, don't lose his temper, don't do anything rash. But listen to what she says to David about God's protection in his life. She says this in 1 Samuel 25, 29. She says, yet a man is risen to pursue thee and to seek thy soul, but the soul of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of life with the Lord thy God, and the soul of thine enemies, them shall he sling out as out of the middle of a sling. Sling out 
as out of the middle of a sling. In other words, here's what is said to David, that God is going to take and do to your enemies what you did to that stone when you slung it and destroyed Goliath. It's associated with the idea of God's protection. God's protection. David says, why can I whoop the giant? I can whoop the giant because it ain't me doing it. The battle is the Lord's, you remember he says in that very same chapter. And he says, I just cannot help but believe that if it's the will of God for me to defeat this giant, then surely the help of God will enable me to do it. You know, he goes that day and wins a great victory. But it was only because he chose the right armor. Part of the reason we keep getting defeated over and over and over in our life is we keep going to that untested, unproven, broken, and meager armor. We keep going to the things that have never worked for us. And if they've never worked for us, why would they work for us now? If you're saved by the grace of God, I can tell you something that did work for you, and that was faith in Jesus Christ. Yielding to Him, letting Him have your life. So it just stands to reason this evening that if we want to have victory in our life, we're going to have to put on that same armor that God used. Put off the old man, put on the new man in Christ Jesus, and let Him have His way in our lives. Let's bow together this evening as a musician comes to play. I wonder if God's touched your heart tonight. If He has, you know you ought to meet Him down here. Don't make Him wait. We think of it as rude to make a person wait. Why would we make God wait? Don't make God wait. Meet Him down here in this altar and uh, and yield your heart before Him. Let, him. let Him have your heart tonight. Preacher, I ain't perfect. Yeah, none of us are, but we can be better than what we have been. Uh, you say, Preacher, I'm never going to be perfect. No, not on this side of glory, we're not. But that don't mean we have to live in bondage. That don't mean we can't have victory in our lives. So why don't you meet God in this altar and let Him have His will and way in your heart and in your life. Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name with our heads bowed.